deals with the study of uh, future events that will happen to individuals. So this is where you get into the timeline stuff. When is the second coming of Christ? When is the tribulation? When is the rapture? How does all that play out? And we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. Not tonight. Tonight we're going to look at general eschatology. General eschatology is kind of the more broad picture. This is uh, the stuff that happens or affects everybody. This is the second coming of Christ. This is uh, rewarding of uh, believers and and judgment of unbelievers. This is kind of uh, the big deal, second coming of Christ. This is what most evangelicals, most solid believers are going to agree upon, that there comes a time when Jesus comes back again. Uh, He establishes a new heaven, new earth. Uh, He reigns. Now, Christians disagree on the timeline of how things happen. Sometimes they argue, which they shouldn't, because it's not a primary doctrine. But there's There can be disagreement there, but there is not disagreement on the fact that Jesus returns and what that means uh, for creation and what that means for us. So, let's just kind of define some terms. The second coming of Jesus Christ is when Jesus Christ physically returns to earth, beginning the consummation of all things. Uh, Every generation has looked forward to the second coming of Christ. Every generation has looked towards Jesus' returning. And in fact, every generation has thought this is when Jesus is coming back. Even if you go back to the very beginning of the church, the church thought, okay, Jesus left... He's coming back, and He's coming back soon. The disciples expected Jesus to come back. The the group of Christians that were kind of birthed off of the disciples in that first church, they expected Jesus to come back. Once uh, persecution hit really hard to the church, they expected Jesus to come back. We have all, from uh, from the time Jesus ascended into heaven, have been waiting for and looking for the time where Jesus is coming back. So the church has always held to, for the most part, there's been some scattered people, but nothing major, but the church has always held to uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's all throughout Scripture. John 14, 3, Jesus said, If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Matthew 24, 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Acts 1.11, this is right after Jesus ascended into heaven and the angels come to the disciples and those who have been following Jesus. They're sitting there staring up in the skies. Jesus has ascended, looking for Jesus. And He says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw Him go into heaven. So He will come again. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who who are eagerly waiting for Him. So Jesus has come once to establish that uh, kingdom of Christ, that kingdom of God. He has come once to die for the sins of man. Uh, When He comes again, He's not coming to take care of sin. He's done that. When He comes again, He's coming to draw His children home. He's coming to establish His kingdom uh, physically. And He's coming... Uh, with a sword. Ephesians 1.10 As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is talking about the gospel, the, when it's the, the fullness of time, when everything is ready, Jesus Christ will come, unite all things, fulfill all things, and restore all things. 
In our definition, I said that Jesus Christ, or the second coming was when Jesus Christ physically returns to the earth and begins the consummation of all things. The consummation of all things is when all things broken are restored and all promises are fulfilled. Acts 3.21 Whom heaven must receive until the, uh, until the time for restoring all things, all the things about which God spoke by His mouth of His holy prophets long ago. So, when God created the world, He created everything good. At the end of each day of creation, God says He looked at His creation and saw that it was good. Then Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve messed up. And that brought uh, destruction. That brought death. That brought decay to the things that God had created that are good. From mankind to even creation itself. The, the world we live in is imperfect. It is flawed. It is broken because of sin, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, because when Adam sinned and he acted as the representative of mankind and really of creation, he brought that destruction, he brought that sin upon the world. This morning when we talked with the kids, we talked about uh, what did God say was the punishment basically uh, for each person uh, involved in that sin from Adam, Eve, and the, the serpent. With Adam and Eve... Both of their, their things revolve around really kind of creation. Eve would suffer pain in childbirth. Uh, that's creation. That's a, a creating new life, creating new people. That, that sin made that uh, a difficult time for women. And for Adam, he had to toil and work the earth even harder. He was not in this perfect garden anymore. He wasn't in this perfect garden that, that kind of took care of itself, that everything was easy maintenance, that everything was was perfect. Now he had to go and chop weeds. He had to go and plow hard earth. He had to go because his sin had broken the earth. And so now he had to deal with that and live in that. But when we talk about the consummation of all things, when we talk about the fulfillment that comes with the second coming of Christ, we talk about the restoration of that which is broken, mankind, the creation. And we talk about the fulfillment of God's promises, the promises that God has given us uh, in Christ, the promises that God has made, the prophecies that God has made in the Old Testament, the New Testament will be fulfilled in Jesus. So, let's look at three different ways of how the, this consummation, of how this second coming of Christ impacts creation or impacts us. So one is the restoration of creation. This is when the earth will be restored to its original condition which existed before the fall of Adam and Eve. Now we've talked about this before, but in Romans 8, and we really just talked about it, in Romans 8 verses 20 and 21, Paul writes when he's talking about the effects of sin, that sin has affected more than just humanity, but has affected creation. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when Jesus Christ comes back, when He restores all things, it doesn't just impact humanity, which it impacts us the greatest, the biggest, because we are His children, uh, we are made in the image of God, but God will, uh, or Jesus Christ, or God will restore creation back to how He originally had it. He'll restore creation back to its perfection. Restore creation back to where He can look at it and say, it is good. That means no more hurricanes, no more droughts, no more, everything will be 
perfect. Everything will be how it was when God originally created it before sin marred and destroyed and, and broke even creation. So when Jesus comes back, we know that He restores creation. The second thing that we see is that we see the eternal reward for believers. Now, for believers, the returning of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ, is a great time of rejoicing. It's a great time of praise because we see the fulfillment of all the promises made to us through Jesus. Thinking about this, in 1 Corinthians 13, we've got the, the love chapter. But verse 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, have you ever thought about why love is the greatest of the three? A couple of different reasons. One, God is love. Love is one of the characteristics and the attributes of God. Faith and hope are not. God does not have to have faith. God does not have to have hope because God is sovereign, because God is in control, because God is God. He has nothing greater than Him to place His faith or His hope in because God is self-sufficient, because God is perfect, because God is holy, because God is righteous, because God is love. God has no need for faith or for hope. But for us, we do have need for faith and hope because our faith and hope is in Jesus Christ. Our faith and hope and our love is in Jesus looking forward to Him, looking forward to the time when, when we no longer have to, uh, to, to face the, the sin and temptation in this world, no longer have to, uh, to live in a world that is broken, where we feel pain, where we feel anguish, where we feel uh, tired or lonely or anything else that we might be struggling with. We have faith that one day we're going to see the, that fulfillment of our faith. We have hope that one day we're going to see the fulfillment of our trust and our faith and our belief in Jesus Christ when we get to go to heaven and we are with Him for eternity. And so there will come a time when we won't need faith and hope anymore. There will come a time when we are standing in heaven, we are standing with God, where we don't have to have faith. Because remember, faith is the assurance of, of things unseen. There's going to come a time when we see God in His glory. There's going to come a time when we are in heaven, when we are perfected. There comes a time when faith and hope are no longer needed, but love is. And we will always love God, and love will always be a part of, of, of our relationship with God. And so the greatest reward or the greatest fulfillment of our faith, uh, the greatest fulfillment that we get at the second coming of Christ, if we're not already in heaven, is the fulfillment of God's promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the greatest gift that we get. The gospel is the fulfillment of the greatest promise. When our faith becomes sight, when our hope becomes reality, when we go from trusting and believing in that which we cannot see to seeing God face to face, being in His presence in a very real way that leaves nothing to the imagination, nothing to think about, that we are with God. So we've got the eternal reward of believers. The greatest reward is that fulfillment of our faith, the, the realization, the, 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 the end game of our salvation. Revelation 22.4 says this, They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. 1 John 3.2 Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. That's our faith. So we're having faith. We're having hope because it's not yet been appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. 
that Matthew 25, 21, the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. When we look at the rewards that come with the second coming of Jesus Christ, the greatest reward is that we get to go be with the master. If he comes before we leave this world, if he comes while we're still here, then we get to go be with him for eternity. That is the greatest reward that we could have. Even when we leave this, this earth through death and we get to go be with him, that is the greatest reward that we have, is that we have God for all of eternity. We are his, he has adopted us, and we are with him. There is also a reward of our faithfulness uh, to Jesus. Uh, this will revolve around um, roles and responsibilities. Um, flip over to Luke chapter 19 if you've got a Bible with you. Luke chapter 19, 11 through 27. This is the parable of the ten manas. I believe that this is a, a parable uh, looking towards uh, the end, looking towards uh, when Jesus Christ comes back. I'll give you all a second to get there. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was was to appear immediately. So let's just stop there. This sets our context. Context is important. It helps us understand what's going on and why we apply Scripture the way that we do. So it says that Jesus told this parable because they were near Jerusalem and people expected the kingdom of God. They expected Jesus on His white horse. They expected Him with the sword. They expected Him to come and set up this earthly kingdom. They expected Him to get rid of the Romans. They expected Him to be this earthly king. So he tells this parable, he tells this story, because he knows this is what they are thinking. So he tells this story to get them ready, to help them understand that it's not time for that yet. So here's the story. It says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and uh, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know, or that he, that he might know what they had uh, gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. He said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, I will give you authority over ten cities." And the second came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said well, to him, well, um, he said to him, uh, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are, are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. They said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from, whom, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, 
Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He's going to His people. He's going to those who have been the Israelites. They've been given God's commandment. They've been given God's word. They've been given God's promises. They had the prophets. They had the law. They had... They had the revealed Word of God, how God had revealed Himself. And yet when He's talking about those who hated Him, those who despised Him, He's talking about those Israelites who did not want God to rule over them. They wanted the law. They wanted their own uh, self-righteousness. They did not want Jesus. They did not want the Messiah that God was sending. They wanted that earthly kingdom, not the heavenly kingdom that Jesus came to establish. So those are the ones that rejected Him. Those are the ones that said, we did not want you over us. And so there were some who were faithful kind of elude those or, or you know, think of those as, as those who became believers. And they, they were obedient with what they had been given. And so because uh, they were obedient, they were blessed or they were rewarded. So those who did not, those are the ones who rejected His authority, who rejected salvation in the, in the parable. So with that, we look at that and we see that there is some kind of... Um, system when it comes to heaven of how we are obedient on earth, what we do with our faith, what we do with our salvation, what we do with what we have been entrusted. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted with the Holy Spirit. We've been entrusted with the relationship with God. We've been entrusted with the Word of God, with truth. What we do with that somehow in some form or capacity plays out in eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the foundation. That's where our faith is built on. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test uh, what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, so he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what Paul is writing there is there's that foundation, salvation. That's Jesus Christ. That's what the foundation is built on. He is the the foundation that our lives are built on, that our actions are built on. So if if Jesus Christ is our foundation, that's establishing those who he is talking about as believers. Then then how we live our lives, to, to how we obey, how we follow God, how we listen to Him, what we do with our lives, that's the, the, the gold, the stone, precious stones, the silver, the hay, wood, the fire, or not the fire, but the hay, the wood uh, that is being built with. And so what Paul is saying is that basically the more faithful that you live, um, you have a different in some capacity, form of reward. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how that plays out. Um, but that's what Scripture puts out there. Now, listen to how Jonathan Edwards, he was a, a, a um, famous pastor. Um, listen to how he puts it. Jonathan Edwards explains, explains this by saying, Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels for larger, uh, far larger than others. And there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. So what he's saying is this, this ocean of happiness is, is heaven. That's, that's eternity with God. And no matter what size your boat is in that ocean, you are happy. You are ecstatic. You are uh, content because you are in heaven with God. Because we have no sin nature anymore, because all that's been eradicated, then uh, there is no envy, there is no pride, there is no jealousy. Uh, we are with God, and that is our greatest reward. Now, some ships might be bigger, some, some ships might be smaller, but because 
because of where we're at, envy does not exist, jealousy does not exist, but there is some reward system for how we follow Jesus in this world, uh, whether we do or not, or to the extent that we do or not. So when the second coming of Christ happens, there is the rewarding of believers. First, with the gospel being fulfilled, and secondly, uh, with our obedience being uh, fulfilled or being measured out. Third, we see the eternal punishment of the wicked. Those who do not know Jesus will face punishment for sin. Now, I said towards the beginning that the second coming of Christ is not typically argued among believers. But the existence of hell is. There is a movement, especially in more progressive churches or liberal churches, whatever terminology you choose to use there, that that hell does not exist. Uh, There was a very famous pastor a couple years ago who wrote a book about that, and luckily, or, or thankfully, not luckily, thankfully he got pushed out of his church for writing a book saying that hell no longer exists. But there's also a move called annihilationism. And annihilationism means that you believe that people will go to heaven for a little bit, but once their sin has been paid for, God will just annihilate them, destroy them, and they won't exist anymore. Neither one of those are found in Scripture. The existence of hell is found, and the eternity of hell is found. For believers, the second coming of Christ is a great time of rejoicing. For those who don't know Jesus, there is no rejoicing. It is a, a, a terrifying, scary time. And so what I want us to see first is just a couple of scriptures that, that point out the fact that hell is, or that judgment is eternal. And the reason why judgment is eternal is not because God is mean or unloving. It's not because God is spiteful or because God, um, we hurt God's feelings and He's just trying to get us back. The reason hell is eternal is because God is just. And hell is eternal because the offense is eternal. Here's what I mean, and we've talked about this. Our sin is not just bad because God said it was bad. It's not like we're just driving down the road and you get pulled over for going uh, 60 and a 35 and you just broke the law. And the cop says, here, let me give you a ticket and it's all taken care of. That cop is not personally offended at your breaking the law. God is personally offended because our sin is not just breaking His law. Our sin goes against His very righteousness. Remember, sin is sin because it goes against the righteousness of God. God defines righteousness by who He is. So sin is eternal, or the judgment of sin is eternal, because it is against an eternal God. All sin is personally directed towards God. If you're lost, your sin is personally directed. It's a personal affront to God. If you're a believer, then our sin is still a personal affront towards God. Jesus Christ has just paid that penalty for us. So, sin is, or judgment is eternal. Hell is eternal because sin is against an eternally perfect God. So that's why there is no annihilationism, and that's why hell exists. It's not because God is a big meanie. It's not because God is not a God of love. It's because God is a God of justice. It's because God is a God of honor. It's because God is a God of righteousness, and therefore sin must be judged. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And another angel and a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest night or day. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, let's just stop and make an observation right here. If we're going to say that heaven is eternal, if we're going to say that life or following Jesus is eternal, Jesus, or Jesus uses the same words, the same terminology, the same language when He talks about punishment. Eternal punishment, eternal life. If we're going to claim that life is eternal with God in heaven, that there is no ending to it, then the same has to be said of punishment. That's, what Jesus is, that's the, um, the point that Jesus is making there. That's the comparison that Jesus is making there. Jude, verse 13. There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse 13. Wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness... He's talking about those in judgment. Whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of... Eternal fire. Hell is real. Judgment is real. And it is forever. And it is eternal. So when the second coming of Christ happens, or when death happens, and we face our eternity, for believers, that is a great and awesome and beautiful time. For those who do not know Jesus, look at the terminology that he used in the passage in Revelation. He said, starting in verse 10, that those who have rejected Jesus, that He will also, they drink the wine of God's wrath, pulled full strength into the cup of His anger, and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. That's not a pretty picture. That is a terrifying, scary picture. And we're going to look in a second, but we need to be well aware that those people that we know, our family members, our friends, our co-workers who do not know Jesus, this is what they have waiting for them. We cannot forget just because we are heaven bound that there are others because they do not yet know Jesus that are bound for something far worse. So what does the second coming of Jesus cause us to do? One, it should cause us to long for Jesus' return. Revelation twenty two twenty, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. John, as he writes, says, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. We should be looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We should be earnestly and patiently and lovingly and longingly wanting and longing for and saying, Yes, Lord. Come Lord Jesus. Come now. We want to be with you. We might love our lives, we might love our families, but there's nothing greater than knowing Jesus and knowing that one day we will be with Him. Yes, come Lord Jesus. So what does that look like if we're going to long for Christ's return, if we're going to wait for Jesus' return? Does that mean that we just kind of sit still where we're at and stare up at the sky saying, okay, Jesus, we're waiting on you? No. In fact, that's what the disciples were doing. They were sitting there staring at the sky, waiting for Jesus to come back. And the angels came and said, look, he's coming back, but not right now. So get to what he's called you to do. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to wait for the blessed hope? What does it look like to wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Um... Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live in self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Waiting for Jesus does not mean that we just sit back and just kind of say, all right, I'm waiting. I'm just going to sit here until you come. No, it means that we are striving to, to live a life that glorifies God. We are striving to live a life where we are obedient, where we are following Jesus. We are striving to live a life where our lives show the world around us that our God is great. Show the world around us that our God is awesome. Show the world around us that He is God and He is worthy. That we are fighting against sin. We are living self-controlled. We are living a life that magnify and glorify God. Knowing that one day He is coming, and if He comes back right now, we want to be found faithful. We don't want to say, okay, I'll get more serious about my faith later on. We don't want to say, okay, I'll start sharing the gospel later on. We want to do that now because that's what God has called us to do. And there will come a time when our opportunities for doing that will end. Whether it's when our life ends or Jesus Christ comes back. When one of those happens, then we don't get to live obediently anymore because we'll be with God in heaven. We don't look longingly and wait longingly. We don't have the opportunity to share the gospel anymore because we're already in heaven. So that's a great thing. But while we're here on earth, as we wait, as we are patiently waiting, as we are enduring, waiting for Him to come back, longingly hoping for Him to come back, we do so with love. We do so out of obedience or with obedience. We do so fighting against sin and we do so seeking to see others come to know Jesus. Because here's the second thing that it should do as we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It should burden our hearts for those who don't know Jesus. When we think about the second coming, once again, for us, it's awesome. For those who don't know Jesus, it is the most terrifying thing that they would ever know in all of creation. To spend their eternity separated from the love and the grace of God, placed under the wrath and the justice of God, for all of eternity is a terrifying, horrible, not even imaginable thing. So as we think of the second coming, yes, we think the times when we get to be with God, that's great. But there's also a reality for those who don't know Jesus. And it's not as awesome and it's not as great. So as we think about the second coming, it should hopefully encourage us and motivate us and drive us and push us to be more evangelistic to love more people, to take the gospel out, to invite more people to the church, to tell more people about Jesus. Because what we'll look at is when we look at the second coming of Christ more personally and we'll look at the timelines, one of the things the Scripture says is that we don't know the time. We don't know when He's coming back. He could come back today. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back in five years, in ten years, in a hundred years. The reality is we don't know. The reality is He is coming back. And the most important thing about that is where do you stand with Him? If you know Jesus, it's awesome. Praise God. We say amen because we're looking forward to it. We longingly hope for it. We, we, that's what we want above all else. So we get to be with God, with Jesus in perfection forever. For our friends, for our neighbors, for our classmates, for our coworkers who don't know Jesus.
That is not a hopeful, happy time. It's just the opposite. So as we move to our time of invitation tonight, spend some time, let's praise God through song for who He is and what He's done and what He's going to do for us. But let's also spend time praying for for those who are in our, our life, those who are in our town, those who we interact with who don't know Jesus. Because without Him, they have no hope. Let's pray. Father, we come before You now. We thank You for this time that You've given us. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You that there will come a time when He comes again and He establishes reign on earth. We thank You that He will come again. Um, And God, we will see the fulfillment of our faith, the fulfillment of, of the promises that He has given us. But we also recognize that for those who don't know Jesus, when He comes again, God, it's not going to be good. And so, Father, we pray that you would burden our hearts. Burden our hearts for the lost. Burden our hearts for those who don't know you. Burden our hearts for those who who need salvation. And God, we pray for the opportunity, and we pray for the words, and we pray for the boldness and the love and the grace to share the gospel every chance you give us. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.